Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Carol Francis, I just rushed here to sit down, and Dina Metzger, I understand that you are on the line. It's on the true, Carol, board. hello. <laughs> I can see you on the switchboard. I turned the computer on, ran in here, and there was music going on. I'm so glad to meet you, and I just want to introduce you a little bit to the listeners. Dina Metzger is a an author, um, and I have read uh, several of your books, not as many as you've written because you're so prolific, and I just so appreciate the authenticity that's always very inherent in each of your descriptions, as well as you just write beautifully artistically. Thank so welcome you. to my show. <laughs> I'm very glad to be here and to meet you, finally. <laughs> finally, if not in person. I, you know, one place that I want to start with you is, of all the books that you've written, and being at this side of life right now, which book, if you possibly been choosing is kind of prophetic to you about what's happening in the remainder of your life. Which one's kind of, you look back and say, wow, boy, I, I, that was very insightful of me. I don't remember knowing that. or But it's so true, and I've lived it out, and it's become true about myself. Am I talking about You know, I, I don't know if I can quite answer that about the books, um, because in some way... Each book that I've written has been organically connected to uh, really the depth of my soul at that time. And I'm always Mm. thinking about the past and always thinking about the future. But I had the occasion on Saturday night uh, to be part of um, Pacific Standard Time, which is the Los Angeles-wide honoring of the uh, art movement movement. in uh, in the 70s and um, it was a special reading to honor the writers at the women's building and I started the writing program in uh, in the in the uh, at the women's building in 1973 or 1974 and so when I read um, when I uh, 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 opened the reading, I opened it with a poem that um, I that I had written all the way back there, and I'm looking for it now be, uh, because <laughs> I really said, when I wrote this poem, I had no idea that I would be carrying um, all of this uh, for the rest of my life. Wow. So does that answer us? Oh yes, I want to hear the poem. So let me know when you when you find I've that. I've got it right here. Oh, wonderful! Very well organized. Okay. And and the poem is called "Wolf, Leave Tracks Now." Hmm. The animal, looking out of the bars, is relieved to know she is an animal. But nevertheless, they have put her behind bars. When they look at her through bars. 
they become the bars, so to speak. Look how they spread themselves out between the dark poles. She does not want to be those bars, but she is behind them nevertheless. She is pleased to be an animal, but she also knows she is behind bars. She who would not know how to construct bars. She is an animal. That is what she knows. She is the animal. That is what she knows. She knows the animal. She knows. So, wow. you know, three themes um, come together in that um, in that simple poem. My ongoing concern, um, passionate concern with animals and all the work that I've done, um, which uh, shows, speaks about animal intent and animal intelligence, um, uh, the connection to the woman, um, because it, it's a she. And um, this is now 1973 uh, or four. So... The height of the uh, of 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 the women's movement of of feminism, and our knowing how in some way we were put behind bars, right, and and limited and confined and contained, and then the entire theme of the way of imprisonment and uh, oppression um, mm. of the of the other in in our society. Mm. So, so if I were beautiful, keep going. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just going to say if if we were going to ask what some of the themes were that started back then, and that I'm working at passionately now. Here we have three of them. Right. Absolutely. If I were to take the the, the woman's theme, I'm going to be speaking on a radio program later, and we're going to be talking about women and uh, um, and women and bullying and women and optimism and. I was reading about the new president in Liberia, and, and Liberia, and she has such uh, experiences of having fortitude and fighting things through, and really trying to make sure that oppression is not the theme of the government there that has been so in line for women. And we see that in so many countries, and in the United States, we're less conscious of it. And yet, in the 70s, we were very conscious of trying to break out of the. the the imprisonment at that time that we were feeling. But I still sense maybe women as part of the human species, we are in prison. Maybe women as we are attached to things of our society, such as, I'm going to say, beauty. Right. Um, uh, this this whole movement toward not aging. We're not supposed to age. The The whole process of trying to attract a man and having to live a life that is somehow fulfilled because we're in a relationship with men. None of those things in and of themselves essentially are bad or destructive, but it seems like those become bars for most women because they don't have an essence that makes those things work. But and what I would like said to, all that, what do you think? I would like to add to that... Um, the feeling and belief that women um, should not be um, vital, powerful, and intelligent. They don't know that they have the capacity. 
um, to really be movers in the world and that their way, very often their way of thinking or our way of thinking, our way of feeling and our way of knowing may be different for all the good reasons that the mm-hmm. world needs it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so... Um, And I want to add this. I don't know if you know, Carol, that I have done um, peace-building work in in Liberia. And um, though I... I never met. Yeah, I know. I I I never met Ellen Sirleaf Johnson. I did meet Lema, who was a, one of the women who brought the the women of different ethnicities, different religions, different tribes together to say absolutely no to to the war. And I have been there, and I have seen the women sitting and dancing in the streets, in the pouring rain, in the boiling heat, with a determination to restore uh, their country and end war, and they succeeded. Hmm. You largely attribute that to the women's movement there, then. Is that true? Pardon me? You largely attribute that to the women's movement there. Yes, I think we really can can attribute it to the women's movement. They they sat there and they knew it was their their sons, their brothers, their fathers, their uncles who were fighting in the war and who had been set against each other and they went out and they took the guns away. Hmm. Now they had also been absolutely brutalized in the war. And um and and so one of the problems that uh Ellen Johnson is um is facing is the amount of rape and violence against women. Right. Well this is not that uncommon in many countries and and it does seem to me like in the hope in many countries is that the women will discover their power and yet how do they discover power in their innate traits? And so some of the innate traits, I don't know what you would consider innate to women, but I would consider an innate trait uh, of compassion, empathy, caring, the kind of nurturance, the wish for peace. I would suggest that for most women, those are kind of innate, that Mm -hmm. we have to learn. We have to learn to be warriors, and by golly, many of us are better warriors than men. But um, it's to me that seems like for most women that's a learned response, not innate. So how do we learn about our power of our own innate traits? Well, I I, I think that really is the question. How do we learn about the power of compassion? Um, hmm. And um, in, at at the women's building, which really was the hub of uh, feminist culture in Los Angeles, in the country, and and for many years internationally, we spoke about those non-hierarchical forms and forms of intimacy and and caring and and how substantive those forms are, and of cooperation uh, rather mm. than competition. And it feels to me, I I don't know if you have this same experience with the people you work with, that competitiveness is imposed and learned, but is Mm -hmm. not innate in women. I'm going to say that competitiveness for their man seems to be innate for women. Uh, I'm going to say that for their children, 
something about that domain seems to be kind of innate, probably a survival type of response. I'm going to say that competitiveness seems to be more innate in men, mm-hmm. that it's, it, it brings them alive, whereas competitiveness seems to bring kind of a destructive lowering of a woman's energy, yet uh, it's tapping into an intensity that makes her able to survive and be a warrior. That's my take on it as you say that. But where, where are you taking this idea? Um, I felt that, um, you know, I'm going back to this particular time, which was really so, so, so strong uh, for me, and all the things that developed um, from it. In uh, in the 90s, I was the co-editor of a uh, an anthology called Intimate Nature, um, the bond between women and animals. And um, it included uh, many uh, very serious articles by women scientists and researchers. And when we brought all the essays together, what we saw was that women's intimacy with animals, whether they're research subjects or they're friends, kin, pets, whatever you want to call it, companions, women's intimacy revealed more information about the animal than really could be derived from the so-called objective scientific studies. So from that, the woman's instinct, the woman's scientist instinct was to give the animal a name. To be in relationship, to be in and to be in a compassionate connection, um, they did that despite the restrictions of science and sometimes the ridicule. So mm-hmm. it has to be innate the relationship. I think relationship is innate to women. I think it may once have been innate to men, but we've had too many thousands of years where it's been undermined. Oh, interesting. It's inherent in indigenous and traditional cultures that we do things together, that we have tribal affinities, that families are strong groups. Uh, But we've lost that. Hmm. You you, you ever wonder about some of the animal species, though, where the men come and they impregnate the the chosen females and then they drift off and they're not around again until the fertility time comes? So that the the tribe seems to be adherent to the mothers and the children, mm-hmm. and then the father might come and take take one, some of the boys with them, so to speak, and off they go. So sometimes I feel like he, there are certain clusters of human beings that are very similar to that. Certain men that that's how they they do their walk through relationships. Um, and then, but you're saying something quite different about animal species as well. Well, you know, there are many animals, elephants, for example, that for the most part, um, the what they call a nursing herd or a breeding herd, uh, can be from, you know, 10 to maybe hundreds of animals that are sometimes together and sometimes split apart. And there are matriarchs and, and, and the aunties and the daughters and the grandchildren, etc., the young bulls stay for about maybe 15, 16 years until they're also uh, sent out, and then they form their own herds, or they sometimes go with the 
with the bulls and have small herds with the bulls. Then the older, older, older bulls, they get to go out like the elder and be by themselves. Mm, um, but uh, what we have found is that when, um, when, when, when the elephants have been culled and the matriarchs are killed, then there is no one to teach the younger elephants everything they need to know, including where the water holes are, what the migration routes are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When the bulls are culled, then there's no one to contain and train the young bulls, and they actually begin to act out. They get so loose, uh, so um, lost and mm-hmm. deprived that they lose their, their true nature. They become violent in ways they've never been violent before. Wow. So the bulls, though they may have left, they're like the uncles in an African society, very often more important than the father in terms of uh, being in relationship to uh, to the younger ones. I'm assuming that that's the uncle, that's the brother to the to the to the mom. Is that correct? Um, yes. As opposed uh, to no, the not to necessarily. The okay. Oh, interesting. Not necessarily. Uncle. That's interesting. So, it, 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 as I listen to you, I'm thinking about um, the number of women who are single, <clears throat> number of women going through divorce and they're raising children on their own, um, a number of um, women who have friendships with women that is much more satisfying than it is with the men that they've tried to integrate into their life. And that the women that I work with experience that both as a sense of powerlessness Mm -hmm. because somehow the definition of the man in the life creates identity and power, and yet that also creates kind of a sense of independence. But the problem that I'm also seeing is that women therefore have to take on male-female qualities in society so they lose touch with... Um, the, the feminine, the feminine capacity to not have to be competitive, to not have to be right. the hunter, so to speak. So, what what do you say to women that are in that situation? Well, first I tell them I'm heartbroken for them. <laughs> oh, well, it is so hard. Heartbroken. I mean, because they're working so hard. But you work very hard. You, you, yeah. You're incredibly independent, hardworking. Lots of things on your shoulders, I understand it. So, how, how did, how, so tell me more about what your thoughts are in terms of integrating all that. Well, I think the women who are raising children by themselves, as you said, have to be everything, father and mother. Um, and they have to carry all those qualities. And very often they're the breadwinners. Um, so in a... Um, in another kind of society, whether it's a tribal society or an animal society, different um, different genders have their roles. So lions, for example, um, it is the female lion who hunts. She doesn't hunt alone. She and her sisters go out and hunt because a lion alone can't bring back enough food. Hmm. And you could look at the male and... You know, you say, oh, my God, he's just lying around. What's he doing? Um, because 
they bring back the food, he eats it first. But he's protecting. So he protects the perimeter. If danger comes, then he's the one. And he and, 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 and the other males that'll that'll go out. Um so there is a there is a division of labor. Um, uh, even if the if the roles aren't quite uh traditional. Um among wolves there's an alpha couple and um they have the cubs one year. The uncles and the aunts who are also coupled they take care of the of the cubs. So mama nurses the cubs. She goes off and lies down and uncle and auntie play with them and keep them amused and stuff like that. And then mama does not have to go get food. They get the food. Now this is interesting. The next year or the year after different couples get fertile and become the alpha couple. There's some kind of biologic um, adjustment so that the same pair don't always do it. What a beautiful dance of nature. <laughs> beautiful <laughs> dance of nature. Do you think that, that it's astonishing? That, it's just astonishing. And do you think that... Um, that we have this in our society, we have this dance of nature in our society too, and we're just manifesting it less consciously or deliberately, or we don't even know we're following in step with it. I don't um, think we have it anymore. Hmm. I think we have completely disconnected ourselves from the hmm. natural world, and everything that we're suffering is related to that. And hmm. I don't think we have it anymore. And, of course, we're taking all these... Um, drugs and potions and, you know, mm-hmm. substances. And so our system has lost its natural intelligence. It's That's interfered true. with, it's manipulated. Mm-hmm. When um, women approach sex with mm-hmm. men, which is something that, and I was very impressed uh, with the women in Liberia, Liberia don't give sex until they stop fighting was one of the mm-hmm. the, the motifs I understand. The idea in, in the book that you contributed to that I edited called Evolving Women's Consciousness Dialogues with 21st Century Women, one of the doctors, Dr. Betty Burston, advocates that if women could become in touch with the power they have in withholding sex, not in a manipulation, but in a declaration of their power, that if she knew that within 99 years our species would be done if all women stopped having sex, you know, or maybe even shorter, that if a woman can tap into the power inherent in that, not just in terms of emotional manipulation, but in terms of really requiring a society to conform to compassion, empathy, um, respect, would women really pay attention to that? Would they heed that? Would they be able to do that? Would that be part of returning to nature? Hmm. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm thinking about Lisa Strata, you know, the Greek play where the women said, you know, until you end the war, we're not having sex. That was it. And, right. um, well, you know, the war stopped. I mean, come hmm. on. 
So if women, <laughs> come on, men, men know their priority. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we need to know that that is their priority and that that is very, very important that we hold that in respect. I'm not saying contemptuously, but in respect that we hold dear to that. Well, you know, even if we brought it into the um, the domestic, you know, the personal, if the woman was able to say to her partner, I will not have sex with you unless we come together in real relationship. Mm. Let Let this be a meeting, whether it's tonight or tomorrow night or whenever it is. Let it be a real meeting of loving, intimacy, caring, discovery, wouldn't that change our relationships? Although I have asked this question, and women say, well, he'll just find someone else to do it with. And sadly enough, there. let's see, what's the percentage of affairs? I'm going to say that 60 to 70% of all marriages, there's infidelity that's been actively a part of the relationship. That's pretty high. On both sides or, or on, on the male side? I'm going to say that I don't know exactly how that divides. I do know that males are much more likely to have affairs than females. Uh-huh. What do you so, think of that? Well, then I think that if we follow this through, the the woman the man goes to for an affair also has to say, I can't do this with it, with you unless um, unless it's going to be a real relationship. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, it can't be a single woman making a stand. Right. It's in every woman's interest. It's actually in every man's interest that right. all relationships be real. Mm-hmm. So what is the evolution that we need to take as women? And, 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 and please make reference to all of your books. I want the readers to know and read and, and live with your writing. I love to open up pages in your book. Sometimes I'll just open up a book of you or Michael, your husband's, and I'll open it up just to get the literary, poetic, and emotional moment that I'm going to get out of writing. Oh, I just love love. Well, an early book was called, it fits right in this subject, Carol, an early book was called The Woman Who Slept With Men to Take the War Out of Them. (laughs) Wow. And that title came to me in a, in a dream. Wow. And I had no idea what the book was going to be. But yeah. it really it was about sort of the base. There are many stories that weave in, but the basic story is of um, a war-torn village somewhere. Um, the general has taken over, and the woman's husband was killed in, in the battle. Yeah. And ultimately, she knows that it is her job to continue her husband's fight, which is to go and humanize the general. Oh, my goodness. To go and humanize the general. Right. Wow. Hmm. You know, there's been a lot of talk this month. This is the anti-bullying month <laughs> in the United States. A lot of talk about bully. Uh, bully. Is, mm-hmm. We're going to keep going, if you don't mind. <laughs> yes. That um, 
you know, one of the things that seems to be so much adding to all the bully stuff that goes on in schools is that almost every child becomes a bully because that's what they feel is their right to survive. And that there isn't the consciousness about compassion, about the empathy. And what you're saying is that if a woman is going to change the world, she has to remember what compassion is like and the depth of the power of that. Yes, and she she has to be willing to stand for it. But, you know, I'm not surprised about the bullying because I'm watching Congress. And... And our political leaders have become bullies, and the kids see oh. that. Oh, absolutely. And, oh, and and let's talk about banks that are kicking families out of their house illegally. Absolutely. Or just mercilessly through all of the foreclosures. So for, for women in particular, uh, because we feel we have that innate or ancient knowledge in us, the importance of standing up for what matters is essential. And when women give it over and become like the men or like the dominant society, whichever way you want to talk about it, then 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 we're lost. So, you know, um I, I'm I'm thinking also about the, the returning veterans. And how they are, their souls are, are destroyed by what they're asked to do and the way modern warfare is and how important it is for the community to, to bring them back and help heal them. Right. And, and so, um, the book you, that I wrote, the woman who, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> do you think that we remember? what it was like to feel it ourselves, much less to heal someone else? Well, that's why women got together in the 70s and before and did consciousness raising. It was about speaking about their pain, but it was also remembering what healing is. And I think we're also in a wave, as brutal as our society is becoming, I think we're in a wave of remembering. Um, uh, even words like empathy and compassion are entering back in, into, the, um, into the dialogue. Um, mm. and, and I think women of maybe since feminism since those waves of feminism we really are remembering how much we like each other hmm. how comfortable hmm. we are with each other how interesting hmm. we are hmm. to each other hmm. is that what you got from this uh, weekend's experience where oh my god i i i really? am uh, i am <laughs> so thrilled about what we did and began and how now 40 years later um reading with the poets that i started out with um in 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 a sense we were young women writers together how important our words were how telling our stories was important how finding the forms um of of a new literature were important and um and you know, since then, uh, 
I, I think the the truthfulness of woman's intelligence and insight has has become clear. Um, so we do have women like uh, Ellen Johnson, and we do have writers like Toni Morrison and um, uh, Nadine Gordimer and uh, Adrian Rich, and you know, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Really extraordinary writers. Where when I went to college. Um, it was only till I, when I got to graduate school that we were ever taught Gertrude Stein or Emily Dickinson in undergraduate school. We never studied a woman writer at all. Oh my goodness! Interesting. You know now. You know if you go to a if you go to a therapist, for example, you're likely to go to a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, certainly as likely as a man, uh, and increasingly you're likely to go to a woman physician. Right. So the times have changed a lot since the yes. 70s. Right? And the place because of we're... compassion and intelligence, you know, caring and intelligence and skill are, are together. Okay, so skill, intelligence, and compassion. Yeah. And where is where do we weave in the ability of the woman to be a warrior or protector? Well, I think we have to meet with each other. I don't think we can do it alone. Okay. Well, do you think that's more of a tribal way of linking ourselves together and fortifying each other? If we have to do it, we do it as a team. We do it as a team. We we yes yes we are uh, we're a community. We're a circle. We're um, we're we sit in council. Um, we look for each other's wisdom. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, one of my books is called uh, From Grief uh, into Vision, a Council. And I really tried to create a literary form in which I was not only telling stories and giving ideas, but I was bringing in other people's voices because hmm. I don't think... The, the lone hero or heroine that time is over mm. and and so it is the community it's the circle um from which real wisdom and power comes mm. and um <laughs> and together we, really we can a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> my mind is going a million directions please keep going together we can you were saying um, it, it, it's together that the real wisdom emerges because the essential idea of counsel, when you sit in counsel, is not, boy, I can't wait to tell you what to do, but rather everyone sitting there saying, you know, I don't really know. I hope the person sitting next to me who's going to speak or tell that story is going to know something. So mm-hmm. there isn't that desire to shine so much as to really meet the issue. So in the old days, uh, indigenous people, tribal people met in council when there was a problem. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that again. And I think that council, that form, comes out of um, the consciousness raising that women did uh, in in the waves of feminism. Mm-hmm. We also knew that in telling our stories, we would discover meaning in them that we didn't know was there. But we had to have listeners Mm -hmm. and shared experience. 
That's the way you conducted your writing circles, is that correct? They would all write their stories and read them. Okay. That's the power of that, one of the yes. powers. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. In, you know, the the life of a writer is often very isolating and lonely because there's a lot of time spent internally processing and creating and painting your art on with words on paper. And yet you're saying that you find the collective group fortifying for yourself or enlightening. That's interesting. All of that. And also, if I'm only in the group, then I'm overwhelmed. I have to have um, solitary time for my, my own work and for connection with the natural world and with spirit. Mm. So that there is a a well where we refresh ourselves that's not within the community. Mm-hmm. It would be really interesting to see how this new generation of women um, arise into what you're talking about. Because as I work with women, uh, I, so I'm 56 and I work with women often that are between the ages of 20 and 35. Mm-hmm. And of course, as I've gotten older, that same age group comes to me and they're different. They're just a different group of people. And, and I how are they that, now? Yeah, I appreciate that they have a lot of energy. They're they're very fast. They're on very fast mode. Um, they're very competent, very intelligent. They don't have genuinely a belief that the husband should carry the weight, that they do not want to actually be dependent on anyone but themselves. Um, They do reach out to other women to get perspective and support and clarity and don't rely as much on men for that type of clarity or even for that type of identity, um, as I would say my generation and definitely the generation before me. So, it's it's interesting to see how that's kind of dovetailing with what you're saying. On the mm-hmm. other hand, I also find them to be a very um, hard-pressed, uh, anxious, not in terms of worrisomeness and wringing of the hands, but truly feeling the burden of the efforts that they have to take on on so many planes. However, I think about pioneer women, I think about women in other uh, countries that we are much more aware of now, and women have taken the brunt of taking care of so many people uh, uh, for so long that it's not like a new thing for women to be that competent, that right. capable, but almost a new thing for women to recognize how incredibly uh, dependent the world is upon them and how much power that, that really does bring in their direction. A power meaning mm, strength, I guess is the word I would prefer. Mm-hmm. But, I'm just wondering how women of this new generation, which I'm now fondly calling the generation of social bullies, <laughs> social <laughs> warriors. I'm going to change it to social warriors. The generation of social warriors, they definitely have to be warriors, and yet there's still that social component of it. They have to be able to stand up to the attacks they get from each other, um, but they have to be very, very well fortified. What, what do you think? You know, I mean, it reminds me of your book, Feral, too, even, actually. Yes, well, I mean, the the thing that's interesting about the novel uh, Feral is that there was a young woman who the the therapist um, uh, was called to um, to bring down from a tree. The young woman had gone up to the tree. She was acting like a wild uh, animal, and and the therapist had to bring her 
had to bring her down. And, of course, the therapist had all kinds of ideas about what was wrong and how to fix it. And um, the young woman uh, was, in fact, deeply connected to her own self, was traumatized for all the right reasons because of the pain of the world. And the two of them profoundly educated and healed each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in writing the book, which is based on a true experience, um, I had to keep asking, what is really wrong? And how do we really heal it? And how do we heal it without making it worse? Mm. And so the sort of professional distance that is supposed to occur between, you know, the person who's afflicted and and the healer, that had to go. And hierarchy had to go. And when it did, healing was possible. So there could no longer be arrogance or division or superiority. No, absolutely not. And, you know, in in the novel, when you read it, the girl is so smart and she is so fast and she can detect arrogance in a second. Mm -hmm. And she won't have it. Mm -hmm. I find that very true of this generation. I find it to be very true of this generation. You have to work fast with them. They're intuitive. They're on to you. And they really demand a lot of their therapists, which I love because... They're so smart. They're already way beyond. Okay, now something new, something new. Give me something more because I'm ready for the next dish. And give me something true. Don't you posture and give me theory. Yes, 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 yes. And how do you know? Did you read it or did you live it? Yes. Because if you just read it in the book, they are not interested. No, because they can read too. (laughs) That's right. It's perfect. Yep. And they do, and they do read. We have two more minutes of this being recorded because it's a 45-minute recording process. What would you like to leave us with in the last two minutes? And I do just want to say while you're thinking about that, readers and out there, I know you can listen to us all you want, but there's nothing like reading a book written with such heart, clarity, the mastery of words that will just penetrate into your dreams and your unconscious and your daily life. You must check out Dina Metzger's website and her books, and it's all listed on the page, the show page here. So, Dina, what would you like to say? Well, I would like to invite your audience in particular, since you say they read, to read Entering the Ghost River, Meditations on the Theory and Practice of Healing, because they can follow the whole development of my mind and and my experience and, and this work. And then I would like to invite them to make an alliance with each other on behalf of healing themselves and their lives and and the world, because the world is really in our hands, and we have to take care of it. Yes. And can they trust one another? They certainly can learn to trust one another and to be trustworthy. Yes. How did did the gal and Farrell learn to trust? Because she insisted that the therapist be trustworthy and the therapist went deep, deep, deep into her own heart and discovered where she wasn't and shifted it and became vulnerable.
and found that the vulnerability was a survivable spot. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Dina, can we do this again sometime soon? Oh, I would love to do it. You're wonderful to talk to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carol. And take care. You too. Bye. Bye, everyone.